Would you take a copy of God's Word this morning and turn there with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. If you've been with us, then you know that we are studying through this great letter together. As it is encouraging us to look to Christ. As we have seen for a couple of, uh, going on a couple of chapters now, the author of this great letter has been exalting the Lord Jesus Christ in his person and nature and also in his work. He is being compared to various things, whether that is the testimony of God about himself that is past, that now Christ is uh, the superior and final revelation, or whether it is to other heavenly beings like angels that God reigns and rules through Christ in a superior way. And so the point has been up to now for us to see and understand that Jesus is enough. That for the Christian life and for the fight that we fight, for life eternal with God and reconciliation with Him, for forgiveness of sins and even hope for today, that Jesus Christ is all that we need. And this is important because like the Christians to whom this letter was written, we are, I think, often tempted as we go through the various trials of this life, as we climb the mountain and as we ascend into, descend into the valley, that that our faith waxes and wanes and maybe there's an ebb and flow to the Christian life. And at various times, I think we are tempted to look somewhere other than Jesus for the things that we need whether that's to look to something out there or to look within ourselves as the source of salvation and hope and comfort. But friends, all of those places and all of those things and all of those people, they will ultimately leave us wanting. Most recently, we were looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 in this very practical section of the letter, where in order for our encouragement in Uh, walking the walk and fighting the fight and living the Christian life well, the author of this letter has been encouraging us uh, with some wonderful truths about Jesus and his own life. Uh, If if you see there back up in the beginning of verse 5, he talks about how it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are now speaking And he quotes from the Old Testament and he then begins to elaborate on how God has subjugated everything underneath Jesus Christ. That he rules and reigns in a way that no other principality or power, in a way that no other being ever has or will. That he is now the king of his people and the king of the church and he sits on the throne of their hearts. Not only that, he has ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God, where he intercedes for us, where he prays on our behalf, where he goes between us and God, where he rules and reigns like no other. Not only that, we've been encouraged then to see and understand the impact that that makes on our enduring suffering and trials. If you go down to the end of that passage in verses 8 and 9, what does it say? But we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
And I told you last time we were together that we see in Christ the pattern for our encouragement and hope. And that is that our suffering is not in vain. As Christ's was not. That as with Christ, God Almighty was at work to accomplish his purposes through suffering ultimately that led to his being crowned with glory, that we are to trod the same path and that we can have ultimate hope and assurance that the same God who was at work in the sufferings of Jesus is at work in the sufferings of his children, of his people, of those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that theme that he's going to continue with in verse 10, that theme of suffering, namely of the sufferings of Jesus. But he's going to come at it from a little bit different angle. And I hope to encourage your hearts with the truths that are found in these few verses this morning. We're going to consider a couple of things. The purpose of Jesus' suffering as we see it here. And then how God accomplished this purpose through Jesus' sufferings. And then we're just going to ask the question at the end from verses 11 and 12 and 13. How is this applied to our hearts? What can we learn from this as believers? What does it mean for us? So that's going to be our structure. Let's look now to the Lord in prayer before we turn to his word. God, we thank you for Christ our Lord. And God, we thank you for this great letter that you have given by inspiration of your spirit that we would know him, that we would see him, and through him that we would see and know you. God, write the truths of this book upon our hearts this morning, even as we read. And God, use what we find here to encourage our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, let's begin in verse 10. He continues and says then, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Amen. It's the word of God. I want us to go back to verse 10 for just a minute, and we're actually going to spend quite a bit of time in verse 10 and verse 10 only, because it reveals to us some incredible truths about God and what he's doing through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The first thing I want us to think about, though, is the purpose of Jesus' suffering. As I've told you last week, Jesus' suffering was not in vain. Jesus' suffering was not in vain. That's an important truth because it gives us hope that perhaps ours too will not be in vain if we are in Christ and with Christ, and that the same God that was in work in the, at work in the sufferings of Christ will so be at work in our sufferings, using them to bring about his glory. The question then is, what was God's purpose? I mean, you know the story of Jesus, and it was a gruesome, ghastly story where the only righteous Son of God God incarnated in the flesh, suffered the death of a criminal, of of, of the least of the least, as he was crucified on a cross, as he was beaten beyond recognition, as he, even more than the physical pain, endured the pain of the judgment of God against sin. How, How is it that God was working through the sufferings? What is it that God was 
doing? Well, that actually brings about another question. How is it that suffering can have any purpose at all, be it Christ's suffering or ours? Because if we're going to draw some hope from the truths of these passages, we must reckon with one great reality. Simply put, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist should make Jesus perfect through suffering. Did you hear it? Who brought about the sufferings of Christ? God did. And these sufferings were fitting in accord with God's nature and his plan. Now, at the very outset, what that means is that, yes, dear friend, all suffering can have a purpose if it is brought by the God who uses them for his purposes. The God for whom and by whom all things exist. That's extremely important. We can't just gloss over that as some poetic eloquence discussing or uh, talking about God and then just move right along. What does it mean? Why is it so important for the author of this letter to hold up God in this absolutely sovereign way? It is because our hope for purpose in suffering is directly tied to the absolute sovereignty of God over suffering. If God is not the God even of suffering, who intends and brings and allows and then uses the suffering that he brings and creates in order to bring about his plans and purposes, if there's not a sovereign God overseeing and overruling all of these things, then friends, all of them are simply things that happen. All of them are just another part of the day. Perhaps they have to do with karma or perhaps they have to do with fate. By the way, neither of which can we believe in as Christians. How is it that your purpose can have suffering? At the very outset, like Jesus, only purposes in suffering can come from the God who purposes them. Who purposes them, who intended them and uses them to do what he used them to do who found it fitting. That's, I have to be honest with you, I find that difficult language. That it was fitting in God's eyes that Jesus would suffer such br brutal cruelty. That he would be made perfect through that type of suffering. But, but that's what it says. That this suffering and God's purpose in and through the suffering, that it is in accord with God's nature. That it is befitting of him. That it is good and right, and it falls in line with his plans for redemption. Friends, don't miss that. If we're going to find hope for our suffering and the hope of Jesus' suffering, it's only going to be insofar as we understand that it necessitates that there is a God of suffering, a God that hears us in our suffering, a God that uses our sufferings, a God that unites us with the sufferings of Christ so that we can also be united in glory with him. Do you see that there? It was fitting that God... The sovereign God for whom and by whom everything exists that is made Jesus to suffer these things and to make him perfect through them. That's a wonderful reality. What was he doing, though? Let's get to the purpose. So if we've established at the, at the outset that there's, that there's a God at work in them, and, and the same God at work in Jesus' suffering is at work in our lives and in our sufferings, if we're going to look back then on that picture, what was God doing? We can't answer that completely. 
We can answer it insofar as we've been given, though. And look at what he says. For whom the God that was doing this, the God for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. That echoes the truth that he ends with in, from verses 5 to 9, isn't it? That by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So that he's accomplishing something for others in this brutal and cruel suffering. And he, and he, and he mentions that here. Somehow in the wonderful grace and the, the mysteries of God's wisdom, in suffering as he did, God accomplished as it must be accomplished the full and adequate, complete redemption of all of his people, bringing many sons to glory. Many, not just a few, a whole bunch of them from every place and every tribe and every tongue, from every nation, on every corner of the globe, from every period of redemptive history, from sins great in our eyes to sins very small, Jesus, in suffering, has brought many of them to glory. A great multitude of sinners now enjoy the grace of salvation because God saw fit to bring suffering to Jesus in order to perfect him as Messiah. Wow. You know, what that, you know what that encourages me with? That not only is there a God of suffering, meaning that there is a purpose of God through the suffering, but that it is no small purpose. It's no small purpose. You think, okay, well, that's great that God's using our suffering for something. But what is he using it for? He's using it for the most magnificent, cosmic, earth-shattering, culture-blowing. He is using suffering, the sufferings of Jesus, to change redemptive history. There is no greater feat that's ever been accomplished. There is no greater act that has ever been played out. There is no greater reality in human history than the salvation of sinners. And it is that one significant, astonishing reality that Jesus brought through suffering. All of God's plans for the redemption of sinners was established and brought to fruition and culminated in the suffering of Jesus Christ. Now I'm not saying that you and I are Jesus. He's not going to use our suffering to save others. But friends, what it means is that our suffering plays no small place and no small role. That God has a huge design, a grand plan for every shred and every moment of suffering that his children endure. It's not wasted. It's not only not wasted, it's not frivolous. It's not trivial. Nothing could be more cosmically significant in the plans and purposes of God than the sufferings of his children. And praise God that he uses it to bring about his purposes. Just think of what this means. Just think of what it means that God uses our sufferings for holy and cosmic, earth-shattering purposes. Friends, at least it means that we should labor 
to endure those sufferings with patience. That we should suffer well. That we should not run from them. That we should not spend all of our time and energy and effort trying to rid ourselves of them. But to understand that in the mysteries of God, it's fitting. Because through the sufferings of his children, he is bringing about significant purposes. Now, we know what the purpose was, at least in terms of Christ, as we're told here, that he would bring many sons to glory. And as I've already alluded to, I want to I elaborate a bit more on how God accomplishes this purpose. What's found there at the end of verse 10, in order to bring many sons to glory, God, for whom and by whom all things exist, saw it fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So how does he accomplish his purpose of redemption? It is in the perfection of Jesus through suffering. This is difficult language for us to wrap our heads around. It poses one glaring question, and that is this. How can Jesus, the sinless Son of God, fully God himself, the second member of the Trinity, incarnated in the flesh, totally righteous, totally perfect, how and why could he possibly be spoken of or need to be made perfect? Isn't he already perfect? Well, I think that's a good question, and I think it's an important one that we have to wrestle with. What we know absolutely is that the author does not mean that he is being made perfect in terms of his nature. Just think about the whole first chapter. He's been talking about the superiority of Jesus to everything. Jesus is more perfect than the prophets. Jesus is more perfect than the angels. Jesus is more perfect than all heavenly beings. Jesus is superior. He, he's not in any way indicating to us that God, that, that God needed to remove sin from Jesus or perfect him in that way in accord with his nature. He was fully God. But in taking on human flesh and becoming a man, he set out to accomplish his purposes for redemption, the plan of God for the redemption of men. And so I think that the language of being made perfect through suffering here is not in terms of nature, but in terms of his capacity to accomplish his job, that which God has given. Let me give you a quote. Charles Spurgeon was very helpful to me in preaching on this, uh, the Prince of Preachers. If you've never read any Charles Spurgeon, you should. Listen to what he said. Not that Christ needed to be made perfect in nature, but perfect in his capacity to be the captain of our salvation. That's, he's using the language there, the founder of their salvation. Some of it says the pioneer, the captain, the ambassador, the, the, the leader. Not that he needed to be made perfect in nature, but perfect in capacity to be the captain of our salvation. Complete in all of the offices which he sustains toward his redeemed people. He must be a sufferer that he may be a sympathizer. And hence his sufferings made him perfect. That is that it fully and completely and perfectly equipped him to redeem his human people. He goes on. Is it not wonderful that the Christ who is the head over all things could not be perfected for this work of ruling or for the work of saving except by sufferings? He stooped to conquer, not because there was any sin in him, but that he might be a sympathetic ruler over his people. He must experience the sufferings like those of his subjects. And that he might be a mighty savior, he must be himself compassed with infirmity. 
You know, one of the graces of God in our life is when he, when he gives us someone that can sympathize with our struggle. You know, it's one thing to walk through the valley of death's shadow. It's another thing completely to walk through that valley alone. And praise God that we never walk there alone. Because even more so than the human brothers and sisters and friends and family members that can identify and sympathize, that have been where we are, friends, do not miss that we have a perfect Savior who can perfectly sympathize because he has suffered even greater sufferings than any of us will ever endure. Do do you see? How did God accomplish his purposes in redemption? Through making Jesus perfect with suffering. And what a glorious truth that is. I hope you find some substantial encouragement from that today. I do not know where you are. I don't know what struggle you face. I don't know what trial is most uh, imminent in your life at this moment. But what I do know is that no matter how alone you feel, no matter how alone you feel, if you are Christ's, you have a Savior that knows and a Savior that understands and a Savior that looks to you and says, I'm sorry for your pain. And I know what it's like. And I know what it's like. Let me help you get through. Let me give you direction. Let me hold you up. A Savior that walks with us and holds us and sustains us. What a wonderful truth this is. Notice that God accomplishes this purpose by suffering. This is the great dichotomy of the gospel That what seemed to be so negative, the sufferings of the sinless Jesus, what seemed to be the greatest tragedy in all of human history, and in fact was, humanly speaking, simultaneously brought about the greatest good, both temporally and eternally, that has ever been brought. Friends, we must wrestle with and live in that tension. We must understand that in the mind of God and according to the purposes of God and by and in the mysteries of God, that tension and that dichotomy exists where it is often the greatest tragedy that leads to the greatest good. It is through the path of suffering that we pass into the gates of glory. Jesus, as we saw in verses 5 to 9, is clothed with suffering that he might be crowned with glory. And the New Testament teaches us clearly that if we are united with him in his death, so too will we be united with him in his life. That is, if we suffer with Christ, our Savior and Master, then the God who raised him will raise us with him also. That is the calling of the Christian life. It is to suffer trusting that God is going to save you through it. To put it plainly, um, I've heard it said, you know, that God never promises us calm seas upon which to sail. He simply promises us a safe harbor in which to dock. May that be the truth of this text that gives anchor to our souls. Now, how does he apply this to believers directly? Because he moves now to deal with our relationship to Jesus. 
so that it's no longer some hypothetical or theoretical reality out there just talking about Christ. He moves now literally to identify us with Jesus and to uh, explain and elaborate what the nature of that union looks like. Notice what he says beginning in verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that is, he who sanctifies being Jesus, his participation as God in the work of our sanctification, the shed blood of Christ that makes us holy, and those who are sanctified, that is, those for whom that blood and sacrifice is efficacious or having effect, that, that is, those who are believing in him, trusting in him, looking to him to merit salvation on their behalf, to pay for the sins that they've committed so that they do not have to pay for them, to earn the blessings promised of God that they could never earn by obedience. Those that are being sanctified, just stop here for just a moment, that begs a question. Is this text for you? Friends, if you're not of those who are being sanctified, it's not. This text will probably not make any sense to you. It will be of very little value and benefit to you. This is not some generalized promise to all people that there's hope in the midst of suffering. No, no, no. It is for those who are being sanctified. Because, as we're going to see in a moment, they are united with Christ. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, are of one, some of your translations may say. This does not mean that we all came from God. That's not his point. His point is that in suffering together and being raised together with Christ, we are now brought in the same family with one another. We are now united with one another and we now come from the same source of life. We're not finding life of our own, the sufferings that could and would have killed us. But by God's grace and strength and power, we have been redeemed and made new and set alive. The first thing is then, what does it mean for believers at the outset? The suffering of Jesus and God's purpose and plan through them, it means that we are made of God. That we are now with Christ from the same source, that we've been redeemed and our wicked, sinful nature has been replaced with the nature of God in us. We are brought to glory to be being sanctified by the sufferings of Christ. The sufferings of Christ have brought this in us. We've, we've been united with him. Look at, look at what he says. He's going to go on. We're going to see the second thing. That is why he is not ashamed then to call them brothers. Secondly, it means not only that we are of God, now we are united with Christ as brothers. Friends, I don't know how to help this sink in for you. This language and this reality is more substantial than you or I will ever fully comprehend, period. That in becoming a man, in humiliating himself, in suffering under the judgment of God, the penalty of sin, God not only reconciled us to himself and made us of him and birthed us again, as it were, spiritually, but he also united us with Christ, his only begotten, and made us partakers of his promised blessings to and through him. And now 
calls us brothers, children, family. Look, I have a lot of friends. But they're not my brother. Spiritually, a lot of you are my brothers and sisters. But I'm, I'm trying to help you see there's a, there's a distinct difference. You know, I, I love a lot of you, but, but you're not my brother, who I love a great deal. Th- th- there's a difference. Friends, let it sink in just a moment that you've been brought into the family. It's not just that God reconciled us with himself and saved us and redeemed us from our sins. He then went, he then went so far as to bring us together into the fold to unite us with Jesus. Which of us is worthy of that? Then to make us partakers of all of the blessings of God that Jesus enjoys. Notice the quotations that he uses to elaborate upon this. He uses quotations, and some of them are a bit tricky to actually determine exactly where. But certainly from Psalm 22, certainly from Isaiah chapter 8, and possibly from Psalm 18 as well. But notice what he says. First, the first one there, I will tell of your name to my brothers. So taking the words of this psalm and applying them to the mouth of Christ as if he said them. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Jesus himself thinks enough of us now and cares enough about us now, his brothers, his family, that he is going to testify to us about the Father. He's going to tell us about his nature and his goodness and his kindness and his steadfast love that never ends and his mercies that are new each morning. Jesus himself is personally going to to identify God and testify about him before us. He's going to go further than that, though. What does he say? Look at the next line. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus himself joins with us in worship. Have you ever thought about that? That when the body of Christ gathers to worship God Almighty, it is not in his absence. It's not just that the God... God the Father, this God in, 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 in the sense of the God that we worship is here with us receiving the worship. Friends, think about this. Jesus is sitting in the pew with us as our brothers in the midst of the congregation singing the praise of the Father God Almighty. That changes the way that we see worship. It changes the value that we ascribe to the time that we spend together. It changes the nature of the relationship that we have and how we understand that. Look, secondly, he says, I will put my trust in him. Jesus is saying to us, I'm going to lead you by example. Jesus is saying, not only have I been where you are in suffering, I got to the place in my suffering where I had to cry out to God and had no other place to go. Remember on the cross, my God, my God, as he cries out to his father. And he says, I understand, I have been there. I can sympathize with your weakness As my brothers, I want to lead you to the source of life and hope and eternity. I will put my trust in him, that is, in God. Look at what he says also to his brothers. Again, behold, I and the children God has given me. That is, when Jesus presents himself to God on the last, it will be with every one of his children. Think about that for just a moment. That in being united with Christ through this suffering, Jesus takes us with him 
to glory. And on the last, when he comes before the Father, he will say, here they are. All of them. Every one of your children. All of those that you purpose to redeem. All of those that you have given to me. Every last one of them. Not, not one of them has gone, gone aside. Not one of them has fallen victim. They are all here. Again, Charles Spurgeon, listen to what he said. Uh, unbelievable. Let this sink in. Listen. Our Lord appears here by these words to call the world's attention to his people together with himself. Now listen. He says, Jesus will be nothing except his people are there with him. Even in the great day of his appearing. Jesus will not have heaven without us. He will not have his crown without us. He will not have his throne without us. He will not have the Father's house without us. He will not go unto his rest without us. For he has made us to be part of himself. For we are all one. Just think of Christ without his people, he says. A head without members of the body. What a ghastly sight. A shepherd without sheep, what an unhappy person. A father without children, what a desolated heart. No, no, it shall not be so. Christ is one with his people, and who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Spurgeon says, well, may I answer with the apostle. And then he quotes, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, you've been united with Christ. And he will not have heaven without you. Thirdly, Not only are we then united to Christ, very subtly, I think we need to remember, it necessarily means and it changes how we see that we are united to one another. Just as the head would be nothing without the body, the members of the body, as Corinthians teaches us, need all of the other members in order to function properly. We are united with one another. There are many out in the world, many whom I meet and many who have once been a part of the church that think that they either do not need the church or are ashamed to be counted among the church. They point to that group of hypocrites or those poor pathetic sinners or that little congregation that's struggling together and they are ashamed and embarrassed to be counted and numbered among them. Friends, who are you to be ashamed of the poor suffering people of God when Jesus himself proclaims his unity with them? That he calls them brothers. That he worships with them. Friends, what, which one of us has the right? Which one of us has the authority? Which one of us has the position to say we can do without y'all? We don't, we don't need to worship with you. We don't need your brotherhood and your sisterhood and your help. Friends, Jesus thought enough of us that have been redeemed by grace through faith in him to call us Brothers, and that necessarily means that we should think a whole lot of each other. Shame on us. Christ will not enter into heaven without us. How often do we enter into life and perhaps wish we could enter into heaven without one another? Shame on us. So thirdly, it unites us with each other. And finally and lastly, I'm going to close. 
it means that our sufferings are his. Friends, if we've been united with Christ, as this text tells us, if, in fact, the one who sanctifies and those he is sanctifying have all been made one, together united, and he now calls us brothers, what that means is what is his is mine. The blessings of God that are flowing to Christ have now become mine in him. And what that also means, friends, is what is mine is his. Where I go, he goes, even when that's not a good thing. What it means is that when I suffer, my sufferings are his. Now, that may not seem like a significant reality to you just yet, but think about it like this. If my sufferings are Christ's, will God waste any of Jesus' sufferings? No, certainly not. They are ordained by God to bring about his holy and cosmic purposes, as we saw at the beginning. So be encouraged, you suffering Christian. For you have been united with Christ, and now your sufferings are his. And God will not waste one moment of the sufferings of Jesus. He will not allow him to suffer in vain. Therefore, neither shall you. For you are his brother, a child of God, and an heir of the promised blessings that are coming. Let's look to Christ and let's now pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are thankful this morning that in and through Christ you have made us children. You have adopted us. You have saved and redeemed us and reconciled us. God, so that now, just as was true with Christ, you are using every second of our suffering. And God, we pray that those sufferings, as was true with Jesus, would lead us to glory. God, may we look to you in the midst of trials. May we depend upon you when we have nowhere else to go. God, may we understand what it means to be united with Christ and also with his people. God, stir up in our hearts an affection not only for Jesus, but for the body of Christ. God, help us to see that we do not suffer in vain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.